For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. I am the man, sick with the slang, sick and I'm destined for fame. Do for the fam, not for the gram, stunt me and destined for pain. I do not front, I do not scam, put some respect on my name. Sick like a rain, click and I bang, y'all gon' remember the name. What's up ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls around the world? I would like to welcome you back to the Real Talk with Zuby podcast. Now, on today's episode, we have got on investigative journalist and author, the one and only Ashley Rinsberg. Welcome, welcome to the show, man. How you doing? Thank you, Zuby. I'm doing really well. How about you? Fantastic. Yeah, I'm doing great, man. I'm all good. Awesome. I'm recording this from uh, Las Vegas. It's my first time here. Oh, so, uh... my former home. Oh, okay. Yes, I heard. Um, <laughs> so, okay. Tell people. So let's jump right into that. Tell people a little bit about your background. Uh, yeah, it's been a bit of a itinerant one, kind of moving around um, my entire life. So born in South Africa in the early 80s, uh, my parents kind of absconded as fast as they could to Philadelphia. From there, we were into Vegas for five years, then San Diego. I took off for college in New York. And after college, I was working in San Francisco and for the Internet Archive, which has that very cool Wayback Machine, you know, if you want to find a website from 10 years ago. So they do that in addition to um, lots of innovative stuff. And one of those projects was what they called was uh, the Internet Bookmobile. It was the sort of the brainchild of the Internet Archive's founder, Brewster Kales, a web pioneer. And he sent me to Egypt to kind of install one of these things. I came back and I'm like, I don't want to stay in San Francisco anymore. I want to like go out and see that crazy world. Mm. Um, Cause Egypt was pretty crazy, especially right after nine 11, which is when it was. So I got a job on a, on a sailing boat as a deckhand uh, in the Mediterranean and uh, moved to Israel, which is more or less where I am now. So that's kind of that, that theme through my whole life. Just, moving and looking and searching and sometimes finding most times not <laughs> no doubt there's a lot there man um so how did you get into the world of writing um i just was always drawn to the to the words to the books you know i would just naturally go to that place with a book um from a very young age and always found it to be such a rich and um, comforting place to be when you're like with a book, even a book that's presenting uncomfortable ideas. Um, it, there's still, you're engaging in this world of ideas and this world of, of someone's imagination. Um, and I think that at some, some level translated into writing, translated into wanting to be among those people, be someone who's working in that, language of of literature of images um and i don't know at some point i think i had this panic in college where i was like it actually i think produced an anxiety attack 
panic panic attack where i was like oh my god i'm gonna have to be a writer now and i really didn't want to be a writer i wanted to be uh, a doctor or a professor or something that made sense being a writer just does not make sense Mm. And, and, and I think that panic attack that I had, it seems a bit juvenile in retrospect of, you know, I was like 21 and be like, Oh my God, you know, to be a writer, it doesn't seem like that big a deal. But, you know, when you dive into that life and you live it for long enough, you realize how insane it is, you know, to live on this thing that comes at your pen that not a whole lot of people necessarily want. And when they do want it, they're not, you know, they're not exactly like, handing over the money in buckets, like for a Tesla, which or, or whatever. <laughs> so, so that's what it was. That's what it is. It's a commitment. It's a dedication. Um, and it's kind of an identity. So what was it that freaked you out so much about it? What was it that made you firstly, what was it that made you think that this is what I have to do? And then what was it that was scary about that? Um, I, you know, I, I, I know the exact moment. I still remember it. I was reading, Beckett, Samuel Beckett, um, who's, you know, one of the great writers of, in the English language. Um, he was a contemporary of James Joyce, and he wrote just incredible plays and novels. And he was just talking about how he knew that he wished he'd never been born. I came across that sentence. I'm like, oh, my God, this is what I aspire to. This guy has completely renounced life, and he's at the very pinnacle of the field. Like, this is he's the guy. He's the artist. Uh, and I was like, what, where does that leave me? Cause I'm not, at least at the time and certainly not now either Beckett. Um, but that's a pretty bleak picture. So, you know, that kind of had this moment, like, this is just going to be, this is going to suck. Mm -hmm. But, um, and why, why I felt I had to do it is because I still connected on the inner level with those, with those people and those ideas and, and the notion of creating things that they, that those types of people were able to create. I just couldn't let it go. And it's a bit of a gut punch, I think, um, because you if you're being realistic about it, you know what it means. You know, it, it's tough. It's relentless. And the rewards, at least tangibly, are not that great, like mm. pound for pound. They, they're pretty terrible. So you're kind of like and you know, your chances of success are so, so damn low because it is so hard to do what those people do. What we read these books and we're like, oh, that was a good book. And it's like, mm. to make it a good book, this person had to do a 20 year long apprenticeship. That's, you know, likely still in. And to make it a great book, it's like, forget it. So mm. that was kind of that bleak picture, which, you know, is also one of projection. Obviously it's one that's projecting the fear without having any idea what's actually gonna happen. So I think that was a big part of it too. So you're just kind of like, you sink into yourself a little bit too much when you think that way. And that's mm. sort of what happened, but I did it nonetheless. And, um, you know, started writing, starting fiction, started writing nonfiction, um, journalism here and there, um, and pretty much any kind of writing I've done it, you know, business writing, commercial, whatever it is. Um, and I've just in that way become that, you know, become a writer mm. and what it's still evolving. Awesome. What was the first piece? What was the first piece you wrote or, or the first book? The first book I wrote was a collection of stories called Tel Aviv stories. Mm -hmm. You know, so I, I, once I, once I completed my sailing adventure, moving this boat from um, Italy to Greece, I kind of was like, I'm not going back to San Francisco. I don't want to go back and work um, in, in that, that particular 
time and place, which was a weird time and place. It was like right after the dot-com bubble had burst Okay. in the very heart of San Francisco where I was just this like kind of blanket of depression and the people and, and people just stunned. Like one of my roommates, I had three roommates there in this tiny little place. And this guy was like pulling in major money as a developer two months prior. And then boom, it was just all gone. And now he's like living with four of the guys. He's, you know, in his late forties or whatever he is. And he's just like, what the hell happened? So that was a weird time and place. And I want to just be away from that all. Um, I ended up in Tel Aviv, which was also at a very weird time. It's the tail end of the second Intifada Palestinian up uprising of just, you know, a good year plus two years of just nonstop violence, nonstop violence on the streets of Israel. Buses blowing up, cars blowing up, terrorists opening a, a fire on crowds, like you name it. it. Just And that's every single day, not like mm -hmm. once a week or once a month, every single day. So I got here at the end of that. And, you know, it was this weird place and this weird time. And it, Tel Aviv, especially, is this place that's it's not west, it's not east. Um, it's got something of all. It's incredibly hyper modern uh, and technology focused and also very, very kind of backward in some ways and kind of, you know, crumbly and run down in other places. So it's it was this weird place. And I kind of connected to Tel Aviv in that way, just wandering around these streets and finding looking at the street names like you can really learn something about the place by the street names and what this streets are named after like if it is it really anodyne like oak or elm or you know is it about the the characters the people that made the place and even the that inspired the ideas behind the place so that's what i did and i wrote this book called tel aviv stories which is you know short stories of people that i'd come across that i embellished upon um there's one actual actually small novella within the collection as well which was sort of an a little bit more of a nod to Jerusalem, which is the antithetical culture to the Tel Aviv culture. It's, you know, it's more reserved, a little more refined in certain ways, more devout, um, more intense in certain ways. Um, so I wrote a, a small novella about two twin sisters and the narrator is a young boy and, and they're, they're, they're all children. He's sort of in, in love, he, he's friends with them and he's in love with one of them, but he's not sure which it is. Um, until one of them dies and he then he understands who it was mm. that he actually loved. So that's uh, that was my first book, Tel Aviv Stories. And not long after, I started working on the book that came out recently, which is The Great Lady Wink, the book about the, the New York Times and its mm -hmm. century of misreporting. Okay. Can you go into the new book a little bit more? What was the name of it again? So the, the New York Times is um, it's long been known as The Great Lady because the okay. reporting was always considered like gray. Like it wasn't, it wasn't impassioned. It wasn't like colorful. It was just like very cut and dry. Like here are the facts. Um, and it sort of acquired this moniker, gray lady. I started to look into some of their most important reporting of the last hundred years, beginning with World War II and how they covered the Nazis and how they covered the start of World War II. And what I found was shocking. To be honest, I found out that the the man running their Berlin bureau during the 1930s was a Nazi sympathizer, mm -hmm. and he was known to the New York Times to be a Nazi sympathizer. And his reflect his reporting and his entire bureau reflected that position. If you look at how they reported on major events 
at the time, they reported very favorably for the Nazis consistently and in ways that are shocking and they were shocking even then. It's, this is not just one of those like in retrospect, it looks pretty bad. No, this was actually bad at the time and other people knew it. Um, and they did it anyway. And you, that really grabbed me and had me thinking, wait a second, this is the New York Times. It's not like saying any other newspaper name, no matter how prestigious. This is the one. This is the symbol. This is the flagship of the news media. And you had just, as a New York Times reader, just assumed this was Sterling's credibility. It was just rock solid. And then I go and do my little research and find these facts. And I'm not... I'm not kind of drawing them out of the air. I'm reading them in books by scholars uh, mm -hmm. from the period, journalists from the period, journalists who some of them worked for the New York Times at the period. And what you're learning is that in the, many of the biggest historical episodes that were covered by the New York Times over the last hundred years, they lied or they committed such egregious acts of malfeasance that they ch they changed the story, they made the story, and they altered history by doing so. Wow! Um, and that included with Soviet Russia and the New York Times is the pivotal role that they played in helping grease the wheels of the American U.S. recognition of the new communist regime in the early 1930s. That was the New York Times at the very center of it. Cuba, the rise of Fidel Castro and the communists in Cuba, that was the New York Times at the very center of that story. In Vietnam, the same story. And in the in Iraq war, and again and again and again, right up until today with the reporting on the origins of the coronavirus. Mm -hmm. They are at the center of the story that is the media's attempt to discredit lab leak or the potential, the idea that the virus might have leaked leaked from a scientific lab. The media for two, year, two years has waged a campaign to discredit this idea. Mm -hmm. And the New York Times has been at the very center of that too. So that became this book, which, you know, I, I wrote it when I was very young. I was at that time, you know, in my mid twenties and no one wanted it. People mm -hmm. told me, I mean, big agents, editors told me straight up that they cannot risk going against the New York Times. It's too too much of a business risk to their to their own businesses, to their clients, to their authors, whoever. Um, and I put it in a drawer. It wasn't like today where you could like not only go out and find your own path in publishing, but find your own path in media too. Mm -hmm. You you today you can as you've done um, and just you do every day, you can go out there and become your own media brand that earns credibility. Yes. Then you really couldn't do it. You could blog, but that was the best you can be doing. So I put it in a drawer. I shelved it. And then as this conversation about fake news, false, false media narratives, um, you know, everybody's accusing everybody of lying. And I felt this was the moment to bring this book into the world and to have this conversation honestly, which means, OK, fine, let's look at our idols Let's inspect the idol. Let's see. These are this is the icon of the news media. Let's actually look at it and see, and and have an open and honest accounting of what was really going on there. Hmm. Uh, when you were doing that research, what was the thing that shocked you the most, and or surprised you the most? Um, there were a couple. There were a couple like, you know, the New York Times has the rep, this reputation in the media among media people of like making the most 
stupid errors consistently and just doing like weird and wacky stuff that happens there for some reason. Mm -hmm. And some of those things were like that, which was like that they had a reporter was a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant science reporter. I was going back, you know, we're talking now, he was writing in the 1930s. I'm, I went back 90 years and I'm reading this guy's science journalism when they were just unlocking the secrets of the atom and the energy potential of the mm -hmm. atom and getting to that point where they're almost about to split it. And he's covering this stuff step by step, never missing a beat. And he's getting closer and closer. And as the science is getting closer and closer to actually managing to split an atom in a way that could trigger a nuclear reaction. And then he stops reporting. He goes silent. And you're like, whoa, what the hell is happening here? He's, then he's reporting about vitamin C and like the most boring mundane stuff. Mm -hmm. What actually happened was that the New York Times had made a deal with the Department of War, as it was called at the time. They needed someone to help them with propaganda surrounding the nuclear program. And in exchange, he would get to be the only non-military person on one of the bombing runs to actually drop a nuclear weapon on Japan, on Nagasaki. He was, the, he was the only person who was not military, not government. He was the only civilian that was not a scientist connected to the program on that plane. And for sure, the only journalist. And why the reason was you could find out in his reporting after that, which was really, really devoted to denying this notion that there was radiation poisoning as a result of the bombing. The War Department did not want people to believe it. And they wanted him to help convince the public that there was no such thing as radiation poisoning, that it was just a big bomb, like any other bomb, just way yeah. bigger. And he did it. Wow. So that was one of those like, whoa, is this really, could this all have actually happened? And one of the guys who, and this is where there's like quirky New York Times things I was talking about. One of the other reporters from the New York Times who reported that there was actually such a thing as radiation poisoning was also named William Lawrence. Same name, slightly different spelling. And so you, you've got the one William Lawrence on the left saying there's no such thing as radiation poisoning in the New York Times. Then you got the other William Lawrence on the right saying that there is. And there's, that was just like was so bizarre, this, this episode. What ended up happening in the end, of course, is that they forced the good William Lawrence to stop reporting on radiation sickness and carried the line that there was no such thing. And that's what a lot of the public was led to believe. Um, but I, I still think for me, the most, the most just sheer shocking thing in, in the book for me was their coverage of the Holocaust, mm -hmm. um, which they just didn't cover. They just, they just relegated it to the back pages. They would publish a new story about the murder of 600,000 Jews in Poland, something that was just commemorated this past week that occurred then 600,000 Jews were marched out into a forest and shot. Mm -hmm. And they put that in the back of their pages. They gave it something like two, three inches of column space. And on the front page of the paper that day was a story about a single man in Iceland being shot by police, mm -hmm. shot and killed by police. And you're thinking, what, what, how is it even possible? This is America's foremost news organization then, as it is probably today. They wouldn't cover the biggest story of the 20th century. Why not? And when you start to explore that answer, it just gets worse and worse. 
you know, the, the reasoning behind it gets, makes you a little, it, the shock stops becoming like novel and kind of interesting and kind of tintillating it becomes more just tragic and depressing, mm-hmm. <laughs> but that's what it is. Can you go into that a little bit further? I mean, it was, it was two things. It was identity. It was the kind of identity politics of the period. Um, these were the family that owned the paper that still controls it today. Uh, at the time, were were basically German Jews, and they had the German Jews like Ger- the Jews of Germany had a very very bad time until they were uh, emancipated, until they were they were given freedom from this kind of caste system that they lived in. Like they had to pay a pig tax to enter Berlin, as an example. Like it was, you, you couldn't participate in almost every profession. And so Jews were left to do whatever they could, menial work or, or sometimes money lending, whatever, whatever there was to do. And they yearned to be a part of this great society that was Germany of the, of the 18th and 19th centuries. And they became very assimilated, many of these Jews, they became very accomplished, especially once they were given the full freedoms of the German state or almost all of them. And they wanted to maintain that. They didn't want to be seen as Jews. They wanted to be Germans. And a lot of these people came to the U.S. as immigrants, and they brought that ideology with them. They wanted to be seen as Americans of German stock, mm-hmm. not as Jews. Mm-hmm. So for them, to, they kind of developed this philosophy that, that sort of dictated that Judaism was just like a manner of worship. You know, I'm an American with a Jewish style of worship. Mm-hmm. Um, in order to place the focus on being American to being what we call today white. Um, and that's the course they took. But in order to do that, and this is kind of where their Jewish neurosis got a little bit too involved, is they didn't want to be reporting too much on Jewish stories. And there was no more Jewish story than the freaking Holocaust, which was, you know, genocide of Jews. So they downplayed it. That was one part of it. The flip side of that is that there was a financial motivation. They didn't want to be seen as a Jewish newspaper by non-Jewish readers of New York and the area because it would be bad for business. They didn't want to lose that their, their stature. They didn't want to lose that ability to drive profit. So they didn't cover the Holocaust. And that to me was the biggest and the most important um, shocks that I received from researching the book. That's crazy, man. I also read somewhere that uh, they reported that the war was started by Poland invading Germany rather than the other way around. Is that is that correct? I read that. Yeah. So, yeah. So that was um, that was the lead story of that day, which is September 1st, 1939. And the the front page, there were stories from the Associated Press printed on the front page of The New York Times that day. But what what they reported from Berlin was that German, that Polish uh, guerrillas had essentially attacked a German radio station, killed a bunch of Germans. And then the Hitler was, uh, was basically pitching this notion that they were just retaliating for this Polish incursion by sending, by sending German stormtroopers and shock troops into Poland. And it was designed specifically to achieve that goal. It was a propaganda ploy developed by the Nazi brass. It's called Operation Himmler. They wanted to fool the world into thinking that Germany had been attacked and that's why it was going in. They wanted to buy time. They wanted to 
give at least enough daylight in, in that equation so that the world would not automatically fall on them all at once. So you didn't have, you know, the rest of the European nations that were, that were non-aligned immediately attacking Germany and that would stop Germany in its tracks. They just needed a day or two. And there was enough doubt, and there had already been enough doubt. This was in the context of lengthy negotiations between Hitler and the European parties. And the New York Times printed this as their lead story of the day. Mm -hmm. They printed other things in other parts of the paper. But that was the question to, that I asked myself, how could anyone in 1939, it's not like 1931 or 1932 or 30, where Nazis were kind of new on the scene. This was 10 years of racism, of persecution, of fascism, um, how could anyone believe anything that the Nazis would say and give them the perspective, the privilege of that perspective on the, in the lead story of the New York Times on that critical day? So that kind of led me into deeper into that, that subject matter and to look into what happened in that bureau um, in Berlin. And why did they call the Nazi Olympics of 1936 the greatest sporting event of all time? That was the big headline about the Berlin Olympics, which were... You know, you walk down the streets of Berlin at, during those Olympics, you would see flags lining the streets with swastikas on all of them. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and the New York Times wrote this huge review about the games, never once using the word Nazi, never once talking about a swastika, only talking about how clean and beautiful and wonderful this place was wow. and how great of a leader Hitler was. And you're thinking, holy shit, this again, this is 1936. Mm -hmm. it's, it's not 1924 when people are like, who's this Hitler guy? Yeah. So that's where you had to ask the question, what happened there and why? And the, the Berlin bureau chief was absolutely a Nazi sympathizer. The owners of the New York Times, the same family I was just talking about, were made aware of this. It was reported to them by a mid-level editor in New York. And their response was to threaten that mid-level editor with a lawsuit if he dared to come out with it. So, again, we have more of that kind of pattern of putting putting a business, putting profit ahead of truth, which is a dangerous thing to do. Yeah. And, um, has a lot of echoes to uh, a lot of things that have been going on over the last, the last few years. Yeah. Why absolutely. is it that people do not, I mean, the New York times is one of the most reputable newspapers in the world and has been for a long time. How is it that mm. people are not aware of this is this simply again due to the media itself being able to so deftly hide its own malfeasance or mm -hmm. dishonesty is that is that what it is because some of these stories and headlines dating back decades ago i mean i wasn't really aware of the level of dare i say complicity complicity or at best turning a blind eye to mm -hmm. all of this stuff that happened during World War II. I wasn't, you know, I, I know this is something that happened on a, a wider scale, but with a, a paper such as the New York Times, you would think that this would just be more, you think it would be more common knowledge. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I, I think it's that there's an ecosystem there, you know, mm. there's an ecosystem of the media and, and the offshoots that involves a lot of different elements and players like the Pulitzer Prize. The New York Times has won twice as many Pulitzer Prizes almost as its next closest competitor, 
Mm-hmm. And the Pulitzer Prize is the Oscars for them. It's the it's the huge stamp of approval. And even we hear that and we're like, oh, well, they could want a Pulitzer for that. So mm-hmm. it must be correct. And two of the three people who are writing those articles about World War II that I was just mentioning won Pulitzers for that reporting. The most infamous New York Times reporter, Walter Durante, who covered up the Ukraine famine 10 years before in 1932, won a Pulitzer. So you've got an ecosystem. You've also got a lot of, you know, when the New York Times is, a, is top dog, like if you're in Silicon Valley and everybody wants to be working for whatever, maybe, you know, prior to two weeks ago, Facebook or Google, then you're not going to shit talk them, right? You're not going to go and write the blog post critical of Facebook's core product. And the same thing is true in the media. Like you're not going to go, if you're a reporter, a media reporter, wherever you might be, and go and, and really go for the, the gut um, mm-hmm. criticizing the New York Times. It's too much of a risk and there's too much of a, of a reward if you get to the other side and end up on their team. Mm-hmm. Like it, it's the best, it's just the stamp of approval, like New York Times, you're, you're in. Now you don't have to worry anymore, like you're good. So I think there's that reluctance to criticize. Then you've got the stuff that happened to me when I was first trying to publish this book, like same thing. The New York Times bestseller list is the most powerful tool in book marketing, period. You can make your career by getting on that list. And who wants to screw up their career, clients' careers, colleagues' careers by looking into something that happened, that already happened, that you can't change anyway, if you're in that Mm -hmm. If you're in the industry and if you're not in the industry, why would you do it? You know, so that that kind of left this blank space of like really diving in and trying to understand um, what this place is all about. This, you know, we all have these notions of like these great myths that we're told, like the Santa Claus myth. And we all know kind of deep down that they're false. We just don't want to ever admit it. And I think that's the same thing with The New York Times. It's got the it's the Santa Claus of the media. And I just told people, I'm trying to tell people that it's not real. Mm. What do you think it is about you particularly that has given you the ability or the confidence, courage, desire to write a book such as this that's been so critical of such a prestigious and powerful media outlet? I mean, are you the the first person to do it? Is there another book that's out there like that? Or are you truly the first person to step out there and put some of these stories together um no there's definitely books out there that are that are very critical of the media um there's lots of them lots of great ones and and ones that i relied on for for my research and also books that are not necessarily critical of media but just kind of like giving you interesting snapshots of of certain institutions but you know my case why did i choose to do it this way so, you know, it's a, the difference being is like I, I went after the, the sacred cow, you know, the thing you kind of don't do if you're on the inside of that world. Yes. And if again, if you're on the outside of it, you're probably doing something more a little more partisan or a little more like topical than than that. But I think it's just because I've always been a bit of an outsider and it's just a natural role for me to find myself in a, a person like, you know, living my life. Um, in Israel, or even when I was back in the States, you know, I always felt a little disconnected as kind of the son of immigrants and someone who's always moving from place to place to place. You kind of never really fit in. You're like a perpetual tourist. And that kind of outsider-insider dynamic lets you do things that are different. 
because you don't come in with the orthodoxies of the insider, but you also don't have the cluelessness of the complete outsider. So being comfortable in like straddling those worlds and, and being comfortable by at being uncomfortable, which is what it amounts to, um, I think is what it, what that's really about. It's a bit of being a maverick, you know, it's a bit of being taking the, the path that everyone's like, don't take that path. That's mm-hmm. the stupid path. You know, you, so you, you do take that one. And how do you think we can train that in more people, man? Because I think we've, um, I've said for a while now that we have a cowardice pandemic, right? Mm-hmm. People are not willing to point out what is wrong or to ask questions or to challenge any narratives or mainstream institutions, so on and so forth. There's so many people living quietly in the shadows, sort of hoping it doesn't directly affect them and not being willing to just say, hey, look, like this isn't correct or this isn't right or simply I I have a question here. And Mm -hmm. this goes across all different fields. This is happening in the media. It's happening in academia. It's happening in entertainment. It's happening in the medical field. It's happening in the scientific field. All these different areas where, you know, the media is the media is important. I think one of the greatest problems we've had for the past several years and perhaps for the, for the past decade plus, but it sounds like going back even much further, much further than this, is not having trustworthy, reliable media sources or for them seemingly being very difficult to find because, we, we, you know, we, we, we need information. The, the role of the news media is to give us news, give us facts, give us objectivity, and then people can draw their own conclusions or work out their own opinions and whatnot. But there's something that's very disorienting and deranging and ultimately dangerous um, when you can't trust those institutions. I think a big problem we're having right now in the world today is simply not being able to feel like you, you trust anything, right? It's like, okay, this comes out in this media channel, but can I believe it? Okay, this scientific public paper is published, but can I believe it? This comes out here, can I, you know? And um, I, I guess it's always existed to some degree, but mm-hmm. it does seem that the chill and the level of self-censorship and real censorship and all of that, certainly for the past decade, and especially for the past five years, I'd say, it's, it's really, really been on the rise. And it's put a lot of people in many Western countries, even in the UK, Australia, Western Europe, Canada, USA, people feeling like they are supposed to have the right to free speech even, but that they don't, they don't really, right? They, if, mm-hmm. you, if you're afraid to say what you think or to ask questions or to use your free speech, then do you, do you really have it? I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, that's 100%, I think, what's happening. And I think, you know, the question of how to get other people to do it, you know, how to create a culture of people that are taking the risks, mm-hmm. that are um, facing the fear, trend, and, and rather than escaping fear, but just doing the thing that they need to do. I think the way to do it is just to do it yourself. You know, you got to be the person to do it and show others that you're doing it, show show them how you're doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think then also take three people with you, you know, mm. find the three people around you in your life that are like almost doing that thing too for the, in their way or wanting to and figuring out how you can help them, mm-hmm. encourage them, coach them, um, mentor, support, 
collaborate, whatever it is. But I think that that way it spreads, you know, so everyone is working collaboratively. If, and if everyone is kind of, you know, even where opinions are very different, and that's something you can see with like Glenn Greenwald appearing on Fox News, where mm-hmm. Glenn Greenwald, you know, five years ago, just would never, I mean, maybe he did, but it, it wouldn't have struck me as something that he would have done, which is appear on a right wing, he, he being hard left. Mm-hmm. Um, and now he does, because it's not about the opinions, it's about the spirit that they're being pursued in. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, both, you know, it's not necessarily that either one is all the time doing it from the best of intentions. Mm-hmm. But I think in general, what we're seeing is that people are starting to kind of pull together. Um, it's still very much a minority, of course, the, the larger culture is still pushing the same three ideas uh, and still pushing the same institutions to deliver them. But I think we are seeing a shift where people are making changes for themselves. And part of that is economic. I mean, part of that is saying, all right, how can I think completely differently about how I earn a living? How can I create a paradigm shift in my mind, gestalt shift where I'm thinking, all right, well, all I've ever known and all I've even heard about is someone working nine to five and getting X amount of dollars and getting maybe a few percent more the next year and just kind of just doing that. And if you're not doing that, you're, you're failing or you're not, you're not surviving. And to think, all right, maybe there's a different model for me that gives me independence as well, as well as a livelihood. And it's mm-hmm. say, you're seeing, well, independence, that's a huge idea. That's, that's the game changer. And that's where it circles back to media as well, because where we look at the media as this important institution in any society, and the media has always struggled to be free. You want a free press. And what they mean by that is free from government interference. Mm-hmm. But what they forgot about is the independence part. You want a media that is free from government interference and independent of outside influences or even inside influences. You want an independent media that is not that doesn't serve two agendas and only one of those agendas being the truth. Mm. So I think that's the spirit of independence. You know, we've we've had a lot of freedom in the West for a long time. And sometimes when there's too much freedom and not enough, I wouldn't even say responsibility. I would just say independence, a spirit of independence. You get what we have today, which is, a, you know, the the excesses, the, the indulgences of it, um, the complete shit show of, yeah. <laughs> of life in the West, which uh, or, or maybe all around the world. But I think I yeah. think that's what it is. I hear that. I think we need better incentive structures. I think a big problem with what's going on in a lot of these fields and sectors that I've mentioned is perverse incentives. Mm-hmm. And the I think we ideally would like for the truth or a, a desire for the truth or a strive towards the truth to be better incentivized than the lie or the propaganda. And I mm-hmm. think that's that's a big problem, which is that dishonesty is rewarded in many cases and honesty is punished i think that's Mm -hmm. a huge problem we have right now where simply being honest and asking questions and trying to trying to get to the truth even if you don't know all the facts sometimes just being willing to you know have conversations and ask hard questions and try to strive towards it make corrections when you're wrong you know and that that's just not it doesn't seem to be happening at the scale it needs to be i mean to take a great example, I mean, if we're talking media, 
because there's been this whole shift towards online and now a lot of people are basing their revenues off of advertiser clicks and how many people visit a website or whatever, what pays is having a ridiculous headline, right? Have a crazy headline that will cause outrage or offend people or even contain some, you know, indirect, if not direct misinformation, and then get people to click over and then they earn the revenue. So people are rewarded for creating these sensationalist headlines for misrepresenting people, misrepresenting ideas, all of that. And with this world of sharing, I mean, people share things before they've read them. We all see this. We see this on Twitter. We see this on Facebook. Someone just sees a headline and they react to the headline. And the next thing you know, something is going viral and maybe only 10% of the people have actually bothered to read through the entire topic. And sometimes the headline was misleading. And Unfortunately, that gets rewarded. It gets rewarded with the ad clicks and it also gets rewarded on social media from people sharing these sensational things. And I just feel like the um, I don't know the solution here, but it seems like the truth is being punished and Mm -hmm. the lie is being rewarded. And when you create that incentive structure or when that incentive structure exists, of course, you're going to get more lies than you're going to get the truth. And that seems to run across a lot of things. I think that's happening in the medical field right now. I think it's happening in the scientific field where you're having, you know, treatments being suppressed and doctors being deplatformed and conversations being silenced and, and big topics not being sort of allowed to be talked about, which mm-hmm. is very, very strange because if you're trying to get to the truth, really, you want to have all these ideas and voices and communication out there and then people can look at facts and data and learn new things and change their mind and ultimately people can work out okay this is what this is what we know this is what we don't know this is what we're trying to get and just just be honest and transparent about it um Mm -hmm. i think that's i think that's really where a lot of this stems from i don't know what your thoughts are on that yeah no 100 percent think that to be the case i think what i think there's a structural element which is that we are so inundated with media and with Mm -hmm. views and viewpoints in it's almost like a kind of a mob like it's a mob scene um i mean we all we do call it a mob like the twitter mob but it's like too many people crammed into one too small place and the authorities are trying to do crowd control and you know all the people in that cramped place are all the all the ideas the opinions the interests the whatever it's just it's too many of two different types of elements in one place and then what happens is they are just trying to keep the lid on this insanity. Um, and I think on the flip side of that, you know, we've got a media where, like you said, it's advertising, which is in itself a broken model. It was broken by the Internet. It doesn't work. So in order to just kind of scrape by, they need to drive they need to drive huge amounts of clicks. Um, rather than an, a more honest and sort of rooted approach, which would be something like a subscription, you know, which is a model that dates back to the very early days of the printing press, where you would subscribe to a pamphlet or subscribe in order to get um, installments of a novel, uh, you pay a monthly ongoing fee. Mm-hmm. And that, I think, helps keep people a little more honest. And it also gives them the resources they need to do what they need to do well and to not sell, you know, the the bottom of the barrel of junk just to try to like 
scrounge out a living. So I think that's a shift that we're seeing right now. It's like the, the media industry, the news industry, especially just never got it together after their model was broken by the internet. Mm -hmm. They were relying on print ads and print, print newspapers and magazines. They were relying in the newspapers case on classified ads, which Craigslist just wiped out in like mm -hmm. the space of one year. And gradually they, they just got narrowed down the revenue stream into this one thing, which is advertising. And then we had Buzzfeed and then we had HuffPost and then we had Twitter and then advertising just became this thing that runs our lives. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where that ties into some of the points you were making about what's happening in the medical fields or, or in business or wherever else, which is that the control of brands is so great that they can actually affect the discourse in science and the hard sciences. We've, we're seeing this insane cycle that's formed because brands are connected to major corporations. Major corporations are funding a lot of these, a lot of the science, a lot of the medicine. Um, and again, it's an ecosystem. And media is, in this case, I think, very much at the center of this one. And, and I think for the worse, um, it's it's sort of almost creating this weird spillover of its own values, which have been, I think, corrupted by everything that's going on in the last, including the economic changes of, of the business model, um, but also the politics and the, where the two cross over, which is, you know, essentially what you're talking about, which is pandering to a base of 2%. Is, which that's something the media absolutely does. I mean, the, why is the New York Times shifted so radically to the left in the last 10 years, even five years, that lifelong New York Times readers won't read it anymore? It's because they see their future in a tiny base of 2% of woke millennials who are paying for their newspaper. So that's what they've done. They've done it very explicitly. They did it with the 1619 Project, which they put at the center of their marketing. They did it deliberately because it really appeals to the base. Mm. What do you think is the future of media? How do we get through this? What's the way forward? Um, I, I think it's a gradual decay of the legacy institutions, the legacy media. I think they're, I mean, we're seeing, we saw a drastic decay in the last 20 years of their power of their, and their influence and their financial value. It just plummeted. And I think that'll continue over time. They'll be less and less important. They will no longer be gatekeepers like they absolutely were. I mean, you you would ask me earlier, why were, why did nobody talk about the New York Times stuff? Well, it's like you just couldn't. There was nowhere to talk about it. Mm. No one was going to let you on. No one's going to open the gate for you. So you just couldn't. Um, I think that's on the wane. And it's going to sort of, you know, kind of glide toward zero at some point. Mm. And I think what's on the rise is... Um, independent media with mm -hmm. niche media, uh, micro media. And I think around that is, I hope communities, because you know what I was saying earlier about, about social media being like a, a small space with too many people in it is that you don't feel that Twitter, for example, or Instagram is structured by interests. You know, you're, you're just out there all together in this insane space when you're not having conversations because how can you have converse with 20,000 people on the platform in the space that you're in? None of them have any of the same shared assumptions as you. None of them is the same. Nobody knows what they're there for. So I feel like that's a part of that. We see, see possibly even a fragmentation of social media. And we're seeing that with, you know, with the rise of stuff like um, 
alternative platforms like Locals, for example, where people can go there, create their own little tribe, little ecosystem and thrive. And I think that will be the, the trend over time, I hope at least. Mm -hmm. and, and I also do think that nonprofit media will play a very big nonprofit journalism. Journalism that's not there to make money it is, it is actually a 501c3 um, that is funded for a mission. Mm. There's lots of great magazines out there that are doing exactly that and newspapers. And I think that's also part of the model. I hear that, man. Man, there's a lot there. <laughs> there's a lot there. Ashley, it's been an honor to talk to you. Where can people find your book and where can they follow you online? Uh, so, yeah, the book, I would just go to Amazon. The Grey Lady Winked, or you can check out the website, thegreyladywinked.com, and that's grey with an A, not an E. And um, that's a good starting point, thegreyladywinked.com. You'll see uh, all about the book, little snapshots of chapters, um, and more info. And I'm on Twitter. Um, I try to be not too much on Twitter because I feel like it correlates with my fluctuations of sanity and insanity uh -huh, uh -huh. so but if if i if you do catch me you're going to catch me in my full name ashley rinsberg which is r-i-n-d-s-b-e-r-g um awesome. that's my handle so yeah so thank you it's been it's awesome i'm as i'm a big fan and um yeah looking forward Thanks, to the next Ashley. time no doubt man great to have you on thank you Zoe. i am the man sick with the slang sick and i'm destined for fame do for the fam not for the grand stunt me a destiny for Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.